Welcome to our Read Aloud. We have a wonderfully special guest today. Um, Nancy Petrie is, um, has written a book called False Justice, Eight Myths That Convict the Innocent. The innocent. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a wonderful title because it really makes you raise an eyebrow. Uh, <laughs> it piques your interest. Um, and of course, she is a co-author on this with her husband, Jim, who is the new chancellor of uh, ed public education in Ohio and, and the former state Ohio attorney, attorney general. So um, this is coming from the voice of experience. Um, so if I may, I don't know much about you, but if you'd like to start off by introducing yourself and, sure. and saying a little bit about yourself and your husband and how this book came to be. Sure. Um, that would probably uh, be a good starting place, and I'll turn it over to you completely. Thank you very much, Ruth. Uh, as you said, my name is Nancy Petro, and um, I've had a background. I graduated from Denison University with a fine arts graphic design, uh, visual arts major. Didn't take a writing course really in college, uh, but had a 20-year career in uh, graphic design and marketing, and then went into entrepreneurship. I launched a national high school sports magazine. 1995 and drew it for five years. It was called All Stater Sports. But I ended up not writing there much either because I ended up having to sell advertising and run a business and try to keep it afloat, which is a big challenge with the magazine. And then I became the CEO of a software company. And all along I was helping my husband in his political life. He was a lawyer. And then he ran for political life. Uh, he was everything from a state rep for four terms to state auditor, county commissioner in Cuyahoga County, um, state auditor for two terms, and then attorney general. He ran for the primary, Republican primary for governor in 2006 and uh, did not prevail. And so then he went into private practice. But as attorney general, he uh, led his, his main initiative, one of his main initiatives, was to try to utilize DNA to solve crime. DNA was coming of age. And he uh, very easily got the support uh, of the legislature to expand the authority of the attorney general to take a swab DNA sampling of every convicted felon in Ohio and every high-level misdemeanor. And of course, when they then took those samples and put them in what is the national database of crime scene DNA called CODIS, instantly they solved dozens, hundreds, really, of crimes, cold cases. So it was a very exciting time and, uh, for law enforcement when they began to see the potential and started to see the flowering of the potential of DNA. Uh, but what happened was a shock to someone who spent his life in uh, criminal justice and law when he started discovering that there were people in prison that DNA was proving were also innocent. And so he got involved, he was drawn into a case, um, and, I, and, I wanna, and that's where the book begins. I'll just tell you that you know, we've been married for 38 years. We talk a lot. And so everything that Jim was experiencing, other than what's privileged between a lawyer and his clients, I was learning too. And that was something that started really preying on both of us, this haunting feeling that there were innocent people in prison. And so one night I was awakened in the middle of a dream, and there was great clarity to this, what I now feel was called to write a book on this, what we had learned, and also to try to use it as a vehicle to answer the questions that all of this had prompted in both of us. And that occurred in March of 
2008. And for the next two and a half to three years, I really worked on the writing of the book. Stories are gems. It's in a memoir format. It's his person. So as I read this, you have to imagine I'm Jim. And when he talks about Nancy, that's me. But um, I, I'm just going to start and see how much time we have on this. I'm going to start with the very first chapter. And I'm going to skip around going through the book and give you little uh, capsules of it. I will say that it's, re it's really two strains that are woven in this book. One is narrative. Everything about it's nonfiction. One is narrative, and that's Jim's story. He's trying to bring everyone through the same experiences to have the same sort of awakening that we did. But then the other one is the answers to the questions. So that's the research, and that's some of the information that's woven into this. The whole idea is to try to get people not only involved in the criminal justice system, but to make it readable enough that the, the general audience would read this book and it would become a primer on criminal justice. So chapter one, the devil cheats, the devil cheats justice. An unexplained murder changes a small town irreversibly. In a major city, the daily media parade of tragedies, the fires, the accidents, and the murders is numbing. The victims and their shocked families are strangers, which makes it easier to put their sad stories out of mind. But in a small town, not a suburb, but a complete community in a sea of countryside, a murder is much more personal. I don't even close my doors or lock my windows at night, as often volunteered as proud testimony to the benefits of living in a small town, until the discovery of an unspeakable act of savage violence, which has somehow occurred with no living witness. A bereft family member and stunned safety officials can barely take in the brutality, the senseless loss, and the disheartening truth. They have arrived on the scene way too late. Stomach-turning revulsion and grief are mocked by delicate curtains waving gently in the breeze of open windows. Within hours, the town is transformed. Everyone is talking about the murder. Even though the victim is not especially prominent, she is nevertheless one of us. The shock of the crime is accompanied by the frightening recognition that the killer may also be one of us. Fear is palpable. No security system or shiny new locks on doors and windows bring even a hint of the sense of security once taken for granted. The entire town is on edge. If the crime remains unsolved, life remains very gradually, it will very gradually come to normal, but to a changed normal. The town will never be the same. If a suspect is caught, indicted, and brought to trial, everyone in town focuses on the next step. They expect justice, meaning a conviction. If the, if the alleged perpetrator is a local, people begin to recall little things. Offhand remarks, unsettling relationships, odd behaviors, yes, in retrospect, they should know. One person experiences unique anxiety, the elected county prosecutor, who has never prosecuted a capital case, feels growing pressure not to blow it, not to overlook anything, not to miss or mishandle evidence, not to get trumped by the defense attorney who has come to town for the duration of the trial. Wisely, the county prosecutor takes the advice of colleagues and asks for assistance from the office of the Ohio Attorney General. That is when, as Attorney General, I would turn to Chief Deputy for Criminal Justice Jim Canepa. He or one of his staff prosecutors would carefully review the files, drive into small town, and prosecute the case before the trial in the county courthouse with the county prosecutor sitting by his side. Canepa's boyish appearance and casual style 
often masks professional talents in early discussions with defense attorneys. He is known for his playful banter and quick funny comebacks, which put most folks at ease and even off guard. But when focused in a courtroom, that mental quickness is an advantage in the unpredictable verbal exchanges with witnesses, attorneys, and judges. Lean and athletic looking, Kanepa comes to trial prepared and confident, just short of cocky. But he speaks with a down-to-earth, eye-to-eye delivery, as if he's talking confidentially to you and you alone, that connects immediately with just about everyone, including jurors. His manner in court may appear to be laid back, another attribute that charms his audience, but Kanepa knows exactly what to do in a capital case. He is a prosecutor's prosecutor. That is why, in the small-town murder case that resulted in the conviction of Clarence Elkins, it was unusual when I asked Kanepa to apply his considerable advocacy skills on behalf of the imprisoned man convicted of murder and rape. Seven and a half years after he was convicted and sent to prison, DNA analysis had excluded Clarence Elkins from the crime scene of two rapes and a murder. Kanepa looked into the matter at my request, and we came to the shared conclusion that Elkins was innocent. But the jurisdiction's elected county prosecutor and common pleas judge refused to respond to our concerns about evidence of an error that had imprisoned an innocent man and let a guilty one go free. Can you hear me? Is that part okay? All right. I'm going to move a little bit ahead, and I'll give you just a little bit of the story of Clarence Elkins. The book actually covers in some depth three Ohio cases. So the first one was the Clarence Elkins case. That fateful Sunday, June 7, 1998, started out sleepy, as most Sundays did, until Melinda Elkins spotted an officer in SWAT gear, gun drawn, running just outside the large picture window of her mobile home. Then all hell broke loose. In the bewildering moments that followed, Melinda struggled to absorb multiple jolts of incomprehensible news in the midst of total chaos. Her eventual testimony in court would detail a nightmare. Melinda didn't realize that officers of the Carroll County Sheriff's Department had surged onto the Elkins property, four acres in Magnolia, Ohio, acquired for the house that she and her husband Clarence hoped to build someday. Clarence had heard something, though, and stepped out the back door. Within an instant, the sheriff's deputy was at the front door. He directed Melinda and her younger son to a porch where Melinda could not see what was going on outside on the other side of the home. There, Clarence was running toward their older son, 15, who was handcuffed on the ground, surrounded by officers with their guns pointed at him. As the deputy ushered Melinda and her son onto the porch, he asked, are you Clarence Elkins' girlfriend? No, I'm his wife, answered Melinda, bewildered. She and Clarence had been married for 17 years. Then he told the boy to go back inside so that the young, young teenager would not hear what he was about to say. What is your mother's name? The sheriff's deputy asked Melinda. Judith Johnson, she said, begging him to tell her what was wrong. Was her mother okay? No, he answered. Then he told her the awful truth. In an instant, she learned that her mother had been murdered, her niece had been sexually assaulted, and her husband Clarence had been named as the attacker. The crimes had taken place sometime earlier that morning at her mother's home in Barbershop, nearly an hour's drive away. I was hysterical, Melinda recalled. My mind was going back and forth between my mom being killed and them saying it was Clarence. By this time, the Barberton police had also arrived on the scene. Realizing that they had cuffed the wrong person, officers began to take the cuffs off Clarence's son. Hearing his mother screaming, 
The teenager jumped up with one cuff still dangling from his wrist and ran into the home to find her. He knew why she was crying. When the officers had cuffed him and laid him out on the ground, they told him they were arresting him for the murder of Judith Johnson, his grandmother. The officers then rushed to cuff Clarence Elkins, who was as confused as the rest of the family about what was happening. Melinda called her relatives on both sides of the family. The news had already gotten to some of them, which confirmed what Melinda did not want to believe. She immediately consented to having her property searched that morning. Two officers spent hours meticulously looking for evidence in the Elkins' home and their two cars. Detective Jim Weiss of the Barberton Police asked Melinda to sit down in the kitchen where he proceeded to read the shocked woman her rights. The fact that she would be treated with suspicion was another part of this nightmare. Clarence's brother, having heard the family phone calls, what was happening, came over just as Clarence was being taken away by the police. Clarence trusted the police and the system. He indicated to his brother from the police car that everything would be okay. His brother stayed with Melinda and the boys and watched incredulously as the police did their work. As the detectives were leaving, he overheard Charlie Snyder, an agent from the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, BCI, say to another detective, we don't have anything here. While the investigation of the Elkins' property was taking place, Clarence was undergoing questioning at the Barberton Police Station. He never resisted and cooperated when a detective asked to scrape his fingernails and photograph his hands for evidence. Clarence knew that he was innocent and trusted that he would be home that evening. Instead, he slept in the Summit County Jail that night. He would not be back in his own bed for eight years. That's an example of the narrative part, strain of the book. Now I'm going to read uh, one of the chapters that was more a result of our research in trying to find out more about wrongful conviction. And this is chapter 20, called Classic Misconceptions. The first widely published case of exoneration for murder in the United States involved the 1819 conviction and sentencing to death of two brothers, Jesse and Stephen Bourne, in Vermont for the murder of their brother-in-law, a fellow farmhand named Russell Colvin, even though Colvin's body had not been found at the time of the trial. This classic case of missteps has been inspiration for interpretation by both fiction and nonfiction writers. From Wilkie Collins, a Victorian novelist and 19th century mystery writer, The Dead Alive, to Gerald McFarland, a professor emeritus of history at the University of Massachusetts, The Counterfeit Man, to Rob Warden, executive director of the Center on Wrongful Conviction at Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law, Wilkie Collins, The Dead and Alive, The Dead Alive. The Bourne case is an instructive, true account of how justice can awkwardly stumble. The fact that there was no love lost between the Bourne brothers and their sister's husband, Russell Colvin, was well known in the town of Manchester, Vermont. Stephen and Jesse Bourne viewed Colvin as a lazy freeloader who not only didn't do his fair share on the family's farm, but also thoughtlessly fathered a brood of children, further straining the family resources. Colvin also had this inconsiderate habit of disappearing for days, weeks, even months at a time. So no one thought much of it when one day in May 1812, he vanished again. As time went by, some folks in town wondered aloud whether Colvin had come to harm at the hands of the Bourne brothers. However, there was no evidence and the mystery remained dormant for seven years. The question of Colvin's disappearance was raised again, however, when Amos Bourne, uncle to the Bourne brothers, 
was visited in a dream by Colin, who confirmed that he had indeed been murdered and his, his remains were in a cellar hole. When a fire burned down an old barn on the Bourne property, the townsfolk speculated that the fire was set to hide evidence of the murder. Armed with this dream tip, the local authorities excavated the cellar hole remaining after the fire and discovered an odd collection of earthly possessions, a button, a large knife, and a penknife. The penknife and the button, as well as an old hat found nearby, were claimed to be Coleman's. When the, when the entire town now engaged in the unfolding drama, incriminating evidence was discovered near the Bourne farm. A young boy, with the help of his barking dog, unearthed some bones, which were declared human by four local physicians. Based on this growing body of evidence, Jesse Bourne was brought into custody. His subsequent interrogation by the local authorities put him in fear of a death sentence and most probably prompted him to name his brother Stephen as the murderer. Stephen, who had previously moved to New York, was named in an, in an arrest warrant. Meanwhile, after comparing the unearthed bones with human bones, requiring that they exhume a human leg that had been buried following a recent medically required amputation, the physicians changed their minds about the primary evidence in this case. The bones thought to possibly be Colvin's were determined to be of animal origin. While the lack of physical evidence was unsettling, Jesse's statement incriminating Stephen was bolstered by recollections, now years old, of an old argument between Colvin and the Bourne brothers on the very day that Colvin disappeared. Indeed, some neighbors remembered statements in which the Bournes threatened to kill Colvin. Others said that the Bournes' conversations implied that they knew that Colvin was dead. A posse went to New York, apprehended Stephen, and returned him to Manchester. Once Stephen had been thrown in jail with his brother, Jesse retracted the statement. At about this tenuous time for the investigation, Jesse's jailhouse cellmate, Silas Marner, some accounts say he was a forger, some say a perjurer, volunteered to state attorney Calvin Sheldon to testify about important evidence he claimed to have acquired in jail. Merrill said that Jesse had confided in him the facts in the case, namely that Stephen had clubbed Calvin during an argument and their father, Barney Bourne, finished the job by cutting Calvin's throat with Stephen's penknife. While neither Merrill nor the state attorney would admit that Merrill was promised anything for this testimony, he was observed walking freely in Manchester after testifying. Both Bourne brothers denied Merrill's story. Nevertheless, based primarily on Merrill's testimony, Stephen and Jesse Bourne were indicted. Their father was not charged. Stephen faced with mounting incriminating evidence and having undergone a long and intense interrogation that con convinced him that he would soon be at the end of a rope, eventually decided to confess to killing Colvin in self-defense, a lesser crime in the hope of avoiding death by hanging. At trial, the jury gave credence to the testimony of eyewitnesses who discussed evidence, observations, and con conversations many resurrected from years past. Lewis Colvin, Russell's 17-year-old son, testified that he observed an argument between Stephen Bourne and Lewis's father, Jesse Bourne, was there as well. When the argument between his father and Stephen came to physical blows with a riding stick and a club, Lewis, who was 10 years old at the time, ran in fright without knowing the outcome, and it was the last time that he saw his father. The day after the fight, Stephen told Lewis not to tell of what had taken place the day before, and he, and he would kill him if he did. Silas Merrill provided a colorful account of Jesse Bourne's jailhouse confession, complete with Jesse's alleged claim that a few days after Russell Colvin's murder, Steffi, Steph, Stephen Bourne had Colvin's shoes on. 
For whatever reason, the defense attorneys at the ensuing trial did not call upon the physicians to reveal the non-human nature of the bone evidence, which had helped turn the entire tide of public opinion against the Bournes. In a risky move, the defense called for the reading of Stephen Bourne's confession, which had been referenced by a witness, perhaps to show the inconsistency in the testimonies of Silas Merrill and others. Well, in short order, about an hour, the jury returned a guilty verdict for both men. The same day, both brothers were sentenced to death. The, the Vermont General Assembly later commuted Jesse's sentence to life in prison, but Stephen's execution was scheduled for January 22, 1820. According to Rob Wharton, who has written extensively on this case, there are a couple of explanations as to how the dead Russell Colvin was resurrected. But the most likely account has come from the research from historian Gerald McFarland. In The Counterfeit Man, McFarland details the fluke events that delivered delayed justice to the Borden brothers. The November 26, 1819 edition of the New York Evening Post included a reprint of an anonymous letter, an anonymous letter that noted the role of divine providence in solving the Colvin mur mur murder case. This account was read aloud in the lobby of a hotel in New York City and thus came to the attention of both James Welfley, a former Manchester resident who had known the Warren family, and Tabor Chadwick, a minister visiting in New York. He knew a Dover, New Jersey farmhand named Russell Colvin, who happened to be working for his brother-in-law. Chadwick wrote a letter to the New York Evening Post regarding the possibility that the allegedly murdered Russell Colvin was living in New Jersey. Paul Chadwick's letter sent Welpley packing and off to New Jersey. He eventually found Russell Colvin, who had no intention of returning to Vermont. However, Welpley utilized an attractive woman to lure Colvin to New York, and from there he used other trickery to get Colvin by stagecoach to Manchester, where Colvin was greeted by those who had known him and could testify that he was indeed not dead. His return to life in Manchester came without, within only weeks, five weeks, of the scheduled execution of Stephen Bourne. As a legal means of freeing the convicted Bourne brothers, the authorities petitioned the Supreme Court of Vermont for a new trial based on the new evidence that there was no dead man, and the prosecuting attorney refused the opportunity to retry the brothers. Both Stephen and Jesse were released. The news of the return farm hand and the subsequent release of the two brothers convicted of his alleged murder was a big story in newspapers on the East Coast. The conviction errors had been based on two confessions that turned out to be forced and false. Bone evidence that turned out to be bad science. A jailhouse snitch's testimony that turned out to be lies. And eyewitness testimonies that turned out to be mistaken or irrelevant. Curiously, these are the same factors that predominantly contribute to wrong criminal conviction today nearly two centuries later. Okay, now I'm gonna read just a short section that uh, follows Jim's run for um, the race for governor. He's back in public, uh, private practice law, and um, he has been involved in the Clarence Elkis case, which we read about earlier. And he's now being asked to get involved in another case. And that means, as a private lawyer, he became actually the first elected sitting attorney general to intervene on an Innocence Project case and ended up, in the earlier part of this book, actually going head-to-head -head in sort of a public debate with the elected prosecutor in Summit County who refused to acknowledge the importance of DNA evidence that excluded a man who was sitting in jail for a crime he didn't do. So when Jim left and became a private attorney, he worked with the Ohio Innocence Project on that case, 
he was approached again to um, help on another innocence case. And so I'll read a little bit about that. Innocence Project Director Mark Godsey contacted me in the spring of 2007 to ask if I would join the pro bono team working on the Dean Gillespie case. I reviewed the entire history of the Gillespie case, including Laura Bischoff's excellent series of articles in the Dayton Daily News. She reported that when the father of the twin victims read Godsey's presentation on the case to the parole board, even he said that Gillespie did not appear to be guilty of the crimes. Gillespie was convicted of three counts of rape, and he was identified by three different victims, two of them twin sisters in a singular act. I was leaning toward the same conclusion and told Godsey that I was willing to learn more and would consider getting involved. Godsey was hoping that Gillespie's record during his 16 years of incarceration thus far might move the parole board even without an expression of remorse, something that full parole boards uh, require. A model prisoner, Dean had logged more than 12,000 hours of community service. He had been named one of the top 100 individuals for outstanding contribution to community service by the by the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. Over the years, Gillespie, a talented landscape designer, had received recognition for his work on exhibits, including the best in show exhibit at the Cincinnati Flower Show. This time, he would have an unusual asset with him when he appeared before the Ohio Parole Board, eight offers of employment on the outside. Godsey would also share with the Parole Board new exculpatory evidence that was not revealed during the trial. He would argue that if this evidence had been known by the jury, it would have reached a different, different verdict. Gillespie, Gillespie, by then 42, had served more time than many convicted murderers. Despite strong advocacy on his behalf by Mark Gotzi, who became involved in the case in 2003, parole was again denied in July 2007. Gillespie's next parole hearing was scheduled for February 1, 2011. When Mark called me at my new law office to discuss the case, he knew that I was supportive of his work. God, working with Godsey on the Elkins case had been a pivotal experience for me. The more I had gotten to know him over the past three years, the more impressed I became. Early on, I, I wondered, what kind of guy commits to so many uphill battles? Had this lawyer, Mark Godsey, no other options? Godsey's legal writing in the Elkins brief would tip off anyone to the broad scope of his options. He was a brilliant legal mind, and he's an excellent writer. Godsey was an editor of the Law Review and graduated Order of the Coif in an Honor Society for Law School grads, summa cum laude, and second in his class from the Moritz College of Law at The Ohio State University. Then he landed a coveted law court position for Chief Judge Nero G. McKay of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit in Salt Lake City, Utah. His are the kind of credentials that lead to a partner track position with a major national law firm. Gatsy practiced, practiced civil litigation and white-collar criminal defense at Jones Day Revison Pogue in Chicago and in New York City. He could have stayed on this prestigious and lucrative track. Instead, Mark chose to become an assistant U.S. attorney for the Department of Justice. Living in Manhattan, he prosecuted federal crimes such as political corruption, organized crime, and hijacking, hijackings for the Southern District of New York. He supervised FBI investigations prepared and presented cases to federal grand juries, prosecuted cases before juries and before the bench, and argued before the U.S. Court of Appeals. In the process, some of his work received national attention, and he racked up national awards from the Department of Justice and the FBI. After six years of this intense work, Godsey accepted a faculty position 
at the Northern Kentucky University Salmon P. Chase College of Law, where he was a faculty supervisor to the Kennedy, or Kentucky Innocence Project. In 2004, he joined the University of Cincinnati Law School, and there he has excelled as an award-winning teacher and in his life-changing work with the Ohio Innocence Project. Godsey had been a pro bono lawyer for the federal public defender while with Jones Day, Robinson Pope in New York, but it's not surprising that his former, this former federal prosecutor was very skeptical about prisoners' claims of innocence. When I first got to Northern Kentucky, he recounted, the law students working with the Kentucky Innocence Project came back one day from a prison trip. They were convinced after speaking with a convict named Herman May that he was so innocent. And I thought, what a load of crap. Can they tell he is innocent just by looking into his eyes? But a year or so later, DNA proved that May was indeed innocent of the rape and sodomy crimes for which he had been convicted and sentenced to 40 years, and he was released from prison. I was stunned, and I realized that I had to reconsider my own intuition. It's the same lesson that I had learned from the Elkins case. That experience prompted me to question my assumptions about those who claim innocence and about those who choose to listen to them. And for these reasons, when Godsey called, I listened. Since co-founding the Ohio Innocence Project at the University of Cincinnati College of Law in 2003, his free legal clinic had reviewed more than 4,500 requests from convicts seeking legal assistance. The OIP needed pro bono lawyers like me, and plenty of them. The Gillespie case, however was, an, however, was an even tougher challenge for me than the Elkins case. Just as there is no DNA evidence in the overwhelming majority of cases, more than 90% of criminal convictions, there is no surviving DNA evidence to rescue Dean Gillespie. But there is a man we will call Casey. I won't tell you anymore. One of the toughest things for Jim in this case was trying to determine whether he should offer himself up to help get someone out of prison who had been convicted by a jury. And so um, chapter 28 is entitled Discerning Guilt and Innocence. Even though I was no longer in public office and no longer subject to newspaper coverage that comes with elected positions, joining the Gillespie case felt riskier than my intervention in the Elkins case. I had to be certain that Gillespie was innocent, and without DNA, I could not rely on science. The case for his innocence was compelling, though. Plus, I respected Mark Godsey's confidence in this determination. Still, for me, the decision to work on behalf of a convicted felon to reverse a conviction carried a stronger requirement to be on the side of truth than is assumed by many prosecutors and defense attorneys who believe that their primary responsibility is to provide capable representation for their client, be it the state or the accused. Many defense attorneys defend people at trial, even when they know or assume guilt. Everyone deserves legal representation in our system, and I'm glad that there are those who provide it. However, as a young lawyer, I decided that for me, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to defend someone I knew to be guilty. Early in my career, trusting the accuracy of the justice system, I assumed that most persons who were indicted were guilty. I believe that most jurors make a similar presumption. While I still believe the truth sides more often with the prosecution than the defense, I have learned that the opposite is true in enough cases that the only just presumption that we as lawyers, jurors, and citizens can assume is the foundational precept of our justice system. A person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. As a young lawyer building a new law firm, 
with my father and my brother, I took nearly every legitimate case that came in the door, including even some defense work. These early career experiences still inform my thinking and did so as I contemplated the Gillespie case. I remember the day a well-dressed young African-American man came into my office. He needed a lawyer for a serious criminal matter. A high school graduate and a tradesman, he had never been in trouble with the law. Yet he had been indicted for, for felonious assault in the shooting of a parking lot attendant in a bungled burglary attempt. The bullet hit the attendant in the leg and caused him pain, loss of work, and a long period of rehabilitation. The indictment was based on the eyewitness testimony of the victim, a white man. The young black man who had been referred by a client of my father's was scared and worried. He knew that a conviction could carry a sentence of five to 10 years in prison. He said that the eyewitness was just plain wrong. He did not carry out this crime. <laughs> I was familiar with the fallibility of cross-racial eyewitness identification, and I decided to take the case. <clears throat> Thank you. Better. Knowing that the state's entire case was based on eyewitness, eyewitness testimony, I moved to suppress this evidence. <coughs> However, the judge denied the motion. This case was going to come down to whether the jury believed the victim or my client. As the trial date approached, the prosecutor contacted me to negotiate a plea bargain. He would accept a plea of guilty for aggravated assault, a step down from felonious assault. For this, my client would get up to one to two years in prison as opposed to the five to 10 years he risked if convicted under the current indictment. I took the deal to my client. Absolutely not, he said. How can I plead guilty to something I didn't do? I reported back to the prosecutor and we prepared for trial. On the morning of the trial, as all parties and a handful of spectators gathered in the courtroom, my client and I noticed the crime victim, still dependent on a cane from the bullet injury, sitting in the courtroom. He was waiting to be called as a witness. Just minutes before we were to begin, my client turned to me and asked, do you think the prosecutor would take that deal? I don't know, I answered. I'll find out. I approached the prosecutor's table and I asked the 11th hour question. The prosecutor thought for a moment and said, sure, I'll take the plea. As I walked back to the defense table, my mind was racing. The unexpected turn of events presented only two explanations and both were very troubling. Either my client was guilty or he was innocent but unwilling to gamble 10 years of his life on the decision of a jury. How many people, especially those of a racial minority, faced with this decision have pled to lesser offenses rather than risk getting sentenced to prison for a decade or more? I could not guarantee that we would win this case. It was his life and it had to be his decision. He said that he would take the deal. The judge was not one to take a guilty plea lightly. He's quizzed my client repeatedly. Was he sure he wanted to do this? Did he understand his options and the consequences? My client was stuck with his decision. The trial was over before it got started and the outcome made me half sick. I couldn't imagine pleading guilty to something I didn't do. The, the likelihood that this probably often occurs dawned on me for the first time. My client and I walked out of the courtroom. He was out on bond and would return in a few days for sentencing. We rushed to hit the elevator button to catch it as the door was closing. It reversed, opened, and we found ourselves staring into the eye of the parking lot crime victim. We got on the elevator. An awkward silence filled the long moment as we waited for the door to close. Then my client turned, stared directly at the man, and broke the silence. I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm really sorry. 
That's okay. The man answered quietly. His generous response was moving. He seemed to acknowledge that the tragedy of this event was not limited to his own suffering. I was shocked. The elevator door opened. We got off. I pulled my thoughts together and I said, I'm really glad that you told that man you were sorry. You did it then, right? Yeah, he said soberly. I never intended to shoot him. I never intended to do that. He paused. And then he said, I was out with friends. It was a dare. One of my friends had a gun and he pushed it into my hand. I was so nervous, the gun just went off. It was a nightmare. Okay, I said, collecting my thoughts. You will do your time for this. And when it's over, you can put it behind you. Do that, and then get on with your life. You can still have a good, productive life. He was sentenced to six months to two years. He served five months and got out a month early for good behavior. He called to tell me he was out, and he thanked me for representing him. I never heard from him again. Experiences like this breed cynicism in law enforcement and prosecutors, and clearly some skepticism is justified. More than 30 years have passed, and clearly, you know, I was more worldly wise than I than I had been at 28. Nonetheless, the fact, nonetheless, this is the story that I had in mind and is in my heart as I was trying to consider the Gillespie case. Was Gillespie innocent? The fact that he had never wavered on his claim of innocence when he could have pled to a lesser crime and served a minimal sentence is a strong argument in his favor. I decided to go meet him. I'm sorry I get emotional. I've written this, and I've read it a thousand times, I think, but uh, I, I know these people. I know Mark Gotze, I know Jim Petro, and I know Dean Gillespie. <coughs> um, one of the things that Jim decided to do after he met Dean Gillespie in prison was go meet Dean's parents. So I'm going to just read you that little section. We met for lunch at a Bob Evans restaurant. I, could tell Nancy, I told Nancy afterwards that Gillespie's parents, Juana and Roger, were the salt of the earth. They were Christians, not hiding the fact that they were people of faith, living in a small community, and proud parents. Dean, like his siblings, had been popular in school. The Gillespie's did not appear to be in any way dysfunctional. In fact, unlike many complicated family arrangements that can follow one or more divorces, Dean's parents had survived the kind of stressful event that can tear people apart. Everything about them seemed normal, except for the fact that their son had been in prison for nearly 18 years for a crime they were certain he did not commit. Dean's father was quiet. His mother was articulate and obviously bright. The Gillespie's told me about Dean's once promising life, his plans for marrying his fiance, his progress on fixing up the home he had bought, the nightmare of his arrest and conviction, the frustration of all the failed attempts to receive justice. I recalled Steve Fritz, who had rejected Gillespie as a suspect in part due to the veteran detective's conclusion that the perpetrator who committed this bold act of abduction and sexual assault of two women in broad daylight was a brazen, out-of-control criminal. This did not match Dean Gillespie or his stable family, home, and life history. Even though Mrs. Gillespie struck me as a strong woman, throughout the conversation, she became emotional, her eyes filling with tears. This had been going on for nearly 20 years yet it was still raw for her. The Gillespie's wanted me to get involved in the case. I didn't know whether they, uh, that, that would even help, but I was past the point of walking away. I told them I would join the innocence effort on behalf of their son. I want to leave enough time uh, for 
discussion. Fast forward to um, what we call the postscript, um, and um, it, it still has to deal with this particular case, Dean Gillespie case. <clears throat> the last edit deadline for this book was technically yesterday, Friday, July 9, 2010, but that was also the date of the Gillespie hearing before Judge Wagner. We include this 11th hour update on the case. The day before the hearing, Thursday, July 8th, Nancy and I joined Mark Gillespie and two University of Cincinnati Law School students in a downtown Dayton hotel. Gatsi had just finished a grueling pre-hearing meeting with the prosecutors and Judge Wagner. The prosecutors were objecting to evidence and didn't seem to acknowledge the purpose of the hearing. Gatsi had argued that the Court of Appeals had ruled that the information on our new suspect met met that elusive standard of new evidence. It was now the judge's responsibility to determine if it also met the standard for a new trial. Namely, that it, if it had been presented to the jury, the probability was strong that a different verdict would have been reached. God cemented. The prosecutors were fighting the very evidence the Court of Appeals had found worthy of evaluating. Godsey had sought to give the judge his best lecture ever on the rules of evidence tried to explain that the hearing was about proving that a pattern of very uncommon statements about being a contract killer, about past sexual abuse, the repeated false use of the name Roger expressed by the rapist to his victims and also by our suspect to his girlfriend was reason enough, especially in light of new findings on eyewitness testimony, to grant a new trial for Dean Gillespie. Based on the illogical objections of the prosecutors, preliminary meeting with the judge had been a disaster. It would be a long night. Godsey and the students worked into the morning hours preparing the evidence items, but would we be, be able, would we be permitted to present them? Nancy and I couldn't sleep and finally got up before the sun. We left the hermetically sealed hotel in search of fresh air, a brisk walk, and coffee. Downtown Dayton was dead at that hour. Nancy's phone GPS directed us to a locked building that may have contained a Starbucks. We ended up an hour later waiting for a local coffee shop to open at 7, and then hurried back to the hotel to shower and drive to the hearing. Apparently, we weren't the only ones who didn't get much sleep. Judge Wagner had done his homework. When the attorneys met in his office, he acknowledged that the professor, Mark Godsey, had been correct the day before. The judge would hear the evidence. The courtroom filled up quickly with Gillespie's supporters, law students from the Ohio Innocence Project, the press, and others. Just before the judge was about to come in, a door near the bench opened and two armed sheriff deputies escorted Dean Gillespie into the hushed room. Totally white hair, he was dressed from neck down in canary yellow with the large block letters on his shirt that said Montgomery County Jail. You look good, Deanie, a friend from his high school days called out. Yeah, yellow's my color, Dean equipped, scanning the room and nodding to family and friends. A nervous chuckle came from the crowd, which quickly became quiet again in anticipation of the judge ent judge's entrance. The only sound was the breath of sobbing of Juana Gillespie. It was the first time Nancy had seen Dean and his family in person. They are attractive, warm, impressive people, she said. The Dean, his mother and sister, had snow white hair and the fairest skin Nancy had ever seen. They're Irish, I explained. Dean's balding spot was deep pink. There's no way he ever could have had a tan, Nancy said, let alone a deep tan, she added, referencing the victim's description of 
the rapist 22 years ago. From the outset, Judge Wagner seemed engaged in the testimony of our witnesses, ruling more often than not in favor over the prosecutor's numerous objections. Steve Clark, an eyewitness expert from the University of California, Riverside, testified on new findings in eyewitness research. Often counterintuitive, the research nevertheless revealed how under circumstances such as those in which Dean Gillespie was identified, errors can be nearly predictive, and multiple eyewitnesses can finger the same innocent man. The judge was attentive. At times, he gently waved off the prosecutor's objections as if they were an irritating fly. Was it possible that this testimony was shaking Judge Wagner's assumptions? The judge allowed all but one of our witnesses to testify. Then he called the attorneys into his chambers. The prosecutors were attempting to block the submission of Casey's police records of the copycat abduction and other arrests consistent with the behavior of an out-of-control criminal. You mean you're not going to stipulate to police reports, I asked? The prosecutor's sworn duty is to seek the truth, I added, chiding one of the prosecutors directly. Godsey had been masterful throughout the entire witness testimony in court that day. I had been the bad guy in the sidebar discussions. This reminder to the prosecutor had its impact. His objections became noticeably more subdued. We returned to the courtroom and Judge Wagner apologized for the time that this was going to take. He asked for briefs on legal issues for both sides to be submitted by September 2nd. He scheduled time for responses and set the continuation of the hearing for November 22nd, Thanksgiving week. I turned to Dean Gillespie and said, I'm so sorry that this is taking so long. I've been waiting 20 years, he said with a weak smile. I can wait a few more months. Once again, he thanked me for working on his behalf. I believe in you, Dean, I said. Dean's parents, family, high school friends, neighbors, and former fiance, now married with two children, had spent another day with him in a courtroom. As I patted Dean's shoulder in a goodbye gesture, my heart again ached for him. Just days before, I had presented the myths in this book to a conference of judges at Ohio's Miami University. Numerous judges I truly respect expressed appreciation for the message. It was as if they had not known much about wrongful conviction. The judge's response is back to back with Judge Wagner's attentive handling of the Gillespie hearing brought yet another epiphany in this string of life lessons. This difficult effort to find true justice really isn't about good people in the system versus bad or smart versus dumb. By the hand of God, my life's trajectory had, a, had an unlikely intersection with Clarence Elkins, Michael Green, and Dean Gillespie. Prosecutor Ron O'Brien experienced his unexperienced awakening to wrongful conviction with Robert, Robert McClendon and Joseph Fears. Could it be that Judge Wagner was having a similar jarring of his assumptions with Dean Gillespie? From all appearances, Judge Wagner was keeping his word made to me personally. He would look at this case with an open mind. Roger and Juana Gillespie watched attentively as their son was escorted out by two armed deputies. They hung back until everyone had left the courtroom to ask how I thought it went. As we went out, I responded, better than I thought it would when we started this morning. I felt good about the day and said that I thought the odds of our getting a new trial had improved significantly. The Gillespies needed some hope. My appraisal, no doubt, sprang from my own cautious hope. On reflection, however, I have to admit that I really haven't a clue. It is difficult to know the human heart. Any questions?
Um, it was really pretty simple. I wrote and he lived. <laughs> he experienced all this. He would tell me about it. A lot of these stories I'd heard multiple times. Um, and that I, I really think, other than providing the whole story, I think his role also was in reviewing, particularly the parts that were legal. So I'm not a lawyer. And I, I learned a lot about law um, because you know, we could read the law whether we're lawyers or not, and we can understand it actually. Um, and so I, I read all the trial transcripts on all these cases. I read police reports, scientific lab reports, you know, just about anything you can put your hands on, articles that have been written about them. All three of them were high profile cases in Ohio. All three of them had a dedicated uh, investigative journalist who did a multi series piece. So um, there was a lot to find about the cases. But it was, but Jim would sit down and read everything, make suggestions. Um, but, um, you know, so it was pretty divided. Our roles were pretty divided. So, um, out of the stories that you were looking at, how many stories uh, are uh, the stories in a sense of our questionable innocence that we have to ask, you know, consider before putting them in court? Well, we, we spoke about two absolute um, DNA proven innocent people um, who were exonerated and freed from prison. Um, the Dean Gillespie case is yet to be resolved, and it's both in state court right now and federal court. Um, but throughout the book, we talk about the eight myths. The eight myths are the last 25 pages of the book. And by the time you get to those, you know them already. You've learned them through the book. Um, but throughout the book, I, I would imagine that we've made reference to 25 different people, at least. There have been 268 people uh, exonerated by DNA through the Innocence Project alone, and there have been other people exonerated in other ways, but those have been primarily DNA. And most people looking into this say that is absolutely the tip of the iceberg. Because first of all, you start with this universe, and only this many you know, have, have biological evidence. And then, of course, the evidence has been discarded. And then you've got prosecutors who no way are gonna let you look at it, believe it or not. Um, and, and when you get right down to it, what you get is, you know, you, you get innocence projects sometimes that won't even take a case if, if the person's gonna be paroled within 10 years, because this is how long it's gonna take to get through the court system. So on top of that, then they have to be someone who, um, you know, who, probably has family backing them because it's gonna it's gonna totally bankrupt the family. The cost of it. Uh, most of these people, you know, are have spent everything they can uh, to try to free their usually it's a son. Um, so you know, they are the tip of the iceberg and every one of those stories I think you could write a book on. They're all very fascinating. Normally you would say, well, why would it get published? 
because we're not celebrity authors. We've never written anything. And um, I just feel there was a lot of grace involved in this book. Um, just the first publisher who saw it, who we didn't know, we had no connections whatsoever, um, bought the book, which is unheard of. We didn't even have an agent to skip that, which is unheard of. And the way it's changed my life is more that I, I feel I really feel that I have to remain committed to this cause. Um, try, you know, and it's a little frustrating. If I were younger, I'd go to law school. But um, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to promote the book because that's probably the best way I can promote the cause. Uh, and it's also really kind of just awakened in me the thought that um, we really need people of all ages, including my age, people who are ready to retire, to, uh, you know, not so fast. Apply, apply your experience, apply what you've learned in life, and, and try to make things better because there's a lot of fixing out there that needs to be done. So it's changed my life in that way. I'm not dreaming about laying on the beach. Um, projects are involved in two things. One, trying to get innocent people out of prison. Um, two, reforming the system. Because just as when an airline, uh, an airplane crashes, and, and we're all over it to find out what's wrong, for the first time in history, really, DNA has given us a body of error. The, this is the biggest mistake the criminal justice system can do, convict the wrong person. Uh, and now we have 268 pieces of error to look at. And we didn't have to do that. That has been done. And there are six contributors that show up over and over again to wrongful conviction. And there are proven ways procedurally that we can improve accuracy in presenting evidence to a jury. So the eight myths, most of them also have recommended reforms. One of the things the book talks about is Jim, my husband, and Mark Godsey, and several legislators uh, last summer, the result of it all, it took a couple of years, the legislature passed law in Ohio that required some of the reforms that are in this book. It makes Ohio nation leading in criminal justice reform. These same things need to be passed in other states, and we have more that we could get passed in Ohio as we keep working on this. I'll give you just one example. A typical lineup is six people or six photographs. They're spread out like that. The problem with that is that the person, the victim, believes that the person must really be there. They wouldn't show, show me these six pictures if they're not there. And so they look for the one that looks the closest. Now that's fine if the person's really there. But if the person isn't there, that's when you have a wrongful conviction or a wrongful identification. Police know. 30% of the time, victims select the non-suspect, who's usually another policeman. So they know that there's a lot of error in lineups. The answer to that is to give them one person at a time. Then they have no relative thing. If they look at that person and say, well, no, that person didn't do it, they're not going to say, well, that person looks more like the person who did it than the next one. No, that person didn't do it. And that's the kind of thing that can make a world of difference. 
Okay, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your sitting and listening to someone read to you. That's uh, 